in September of 1853, a little three-masted clipper boat took a a young, gaunt, wide-eyed, 21-year-old missionary from Liverpool, England, to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. And he got to China, and in, at, the, at the time, at that time, China was very, very unreached by, with the gospel, had very few missionaries, and, and he decided not just to hang out on the coast, or he, he went inland, and so he would take rivers on boats. He would take a river into the deep parts of China with, with, with Bibles and with gospel tracts and presentations. And he did this over a lifetime. He founded the Chinese or China Inland Mission. And China became a place that suddenly the gospel started to take root in. He stewarded the gospel well as he took it to China. Amy Carmichael. Amy Carmichael was a young woman who was actually sitting in a room uh, listening at one point to Hudson Taylor talk about mission work. And through that talk, As she listened to Hudson Taylor, she became convinced that she needed to go on mission. And and through a number of different experiences, God finally called Amy Carmichael to India. And she spent 55 years in India without furlough, rescuing young girls from from temple prostitution. An example of two people that, that stewarded the gospel well. We're in this new series on stewardship. If you were here last week, You heard what it is. Stewardship is is basically this. God owns everything. We don't own anything, but he gives it to us to steward or to manage. And one of the things that God gives us is the gospel. It's an announcement. It's good news. God owns it. It belongs to God, but he gives it to us to communicate and to share. He owns it. We steward it. The question is, how do you steward the gospel? How do you steward it well? And we're going to see here through the right motivation, the right approach, and finally through the right aim. So let's look first at the the right motivation. Now, before we get to this and I start answering this question, there's a fundamental question we have to ask. Does this passage apply to you? Does this passage apply to you or does it just apply to the Apostle Paul and his fellow apostles that were establishing the New Testament church? Or does it just apply to the Hudson Taylors and the Amy Carmichaels and the missionaries of the world that go to a foreign land? Well, Paul makes it crystal clear one chapter later at the end of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians when he says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that that they may be saved. That's the same language that by all means, I would become all things to all people to save some. He's repeating it. And then listen to what he says. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul describes himself. He describes his mission work, and then he says to the Corinthian church, imitate me. So this passage is very much about you. It's very much for the church at large. So with that, 
How do we steward the gospel? First, right motivation. Now, in verses 15 to 18, you're going to see that Paul talks about two fundamental motivations for stewarding the gospel, and that is the value of the gospel and the power of it, the intrinsic value, the intrinsic power. He says in verse 17 that I have been entrusted with a stewardship. There it is. Paul's saying, I've been entrusted with stewarding this gospel that is all-powerful and that is incredibly valuable. And he talks about the value of it when he's discussing this boasting and financial support. Now, let me just give you the context. The first 14 verses of chapter 9 speak of Paul telling the Corinthian church why he has the right to receive financial support from them. He basically says, if you, if you preach the gospel, you live by the gospel. So he sets up this case to say, I, am, I have a right to receive financial support for, from you. But Paul says, I'm, I'm choosing not to. He chooses not to take support from him. In fact, Paul chooses to support himself through a, a trade of making and selling tents. He was a tent maker. We see it in verse 15. He says, but I have, no, I have made no use of any of these rights right, to receive financial support, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. Now, why did Paul choose not to take financial support? He wasn't telling the other apostles they couldn't do that. He was doing it because of the context and the situation. In verse 2 of chapter 9, we see that people are questioning whether Paul's even an apostle. They're questioning his credentials. And from that, they would question his motives and what he's doing. And so Paul is committed to removing any obstacle that might tarnish the beauty and the value of the gospel. Knowing that people might question his motives for maybe getting rich by the gospel, being a first century crooked televangelist, that was alive and well then. It's alive and well today. Paul says, I, the gospel is beautiful and valuable, and because there's this possibility, I'm not taking support. I'm going to remove whatever obstacle there is that could tarnish the beauty and the value of the gospel. In fact, look at the end of verse 15. Look what he says. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. Paul says, I'd rather die than have someone take away my ground for boasting. What was his ground for boasting? It was, it was the gospel. It was the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. That was valuable and beautiful. And that was, that was Paul's boast. He didn't want anyone taking that away from him saying, he's doing it for the money. He's doing it to get rich. Paul was removing everything because the, the gospel intrinsically is valuable. It's the good news of Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And that is, that's Paul's motivation, and that's to be our motivation, that it's valuable. It's beautiful. I don't have to spend a whole lot of time sharing examples of, of how the gospel can be used to proclaim what is really valuable to people, right? The, uh, the company that flashes a verse or a fish on their marketing material to gather business from Christians to increase what? Ultimately, the value of their company or politicians that use the gospel to win over a certain constituency, to increase the value of their 
name and their, their campaign base, or even some preachers that use the gospel to get rich. Paul is, is committed to the gospel in and of itself being valuable and beautiful, and he wants nothing to tarnish that. So he says, I'm not taking financial support because I want the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to stand alone as beautiful. That's motivation number one. And then the second motivation we see for stewarding this gospel that God's given us is its intrinsic power. Look at verse 16. Paul says, for necessity is laid upon me. That word necessity, it means obligation. The word laid upon, it laid means, it means pressed on. And the key to understanding that verse is that the, the verb, right, is laid upon is in the passive, which means that Paul is not pressing the gospel on himself. Paul's not pressing this obligation or necessity on himself. Somebody outside of Paul, namely God, is pressing on Paul. See, Paul didn't find the gospel. That's the key to unlocking this. Paul didn't one day say, I'm gonna go find the gospel, it's beautiful, and I'm gonna cause it to invade my life. I'm gonna cause it to let me relinquish my elite upper-class status to go reach people. No, we know the story in Acts chapter nine. What's it say? Paul was on the road to Damascus. He was on the way to go murder Christians. And Jesus Christ met him and blinded him and completely transformed his life. Saved him and turned it upside down. The gospel of Jesus Christ found Paul. And if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, you did not find the gospel. Jesus Christ found you. And so what Paul says here is necessity is laid upon me. And then he says in, in verse 16, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. You see, if, if Paul found the gospel, then there would be room for him to, to have a reward, right, for what he's done, how he found it, how he preaches it. Paul says, no, 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 no. I, found, I, I didn't find it. God found me. The gospel found me. And now I'm under obligation because it's pressing on me. It's flowing through me that I have to go proclaim it. That woe to me in verse 16, that's the language of the Old Testament prophets that were so filled with this urgency of God's message that they couldn't help but speak it. A couple examples, Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. He said that God's word was like a fire in his heart. Think about that imagery. A fire burning in his heart. Jeremiah couldn't help but speak. Amos, the prophet Amos writes that because God has spoken, he must speak. He says, God has spoken. I have to speak. And then you've got in the New Testament, in the New Testament, you've got Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. And what do they tell the Sanhedrin? Listen, we can't help but speak what we've seen and heard. Right? That the motivation for stewarding the gospel well is one, it's, it's, it's valuable and it's beautiful. But number two, it's powerful. It presses in on us so that what comes out is the gospel, that we, we can't help but proclaim it. 
You know, that, that woe to me language that Paul uses, you know what he's really saying here? Woe to me is the equivalent of the greatest misery, misery imaginable to Paul. Now, now, let me just re-say that now. The greatest misery imaginable to Paul is not proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it's that valuable and it's that powerful. God has entrusted you with the gospel. If you are in Christ, God has entrusted you with the gospel. And he would long, like Paul, that we would get to a place where we say the greatest misery, misery imaginable is if we don't proclaim it. In word, in deed, it doesn't mean that you have to be a preacher. Not what it's speaking about here. It's talking about proclaiming the gospel. That's living it out. That, that, that's announcing it. That's speaking it in word and deed. Right? This announcement, this news, that we can't sit on it. That we have to proclaim it. And we have to profess it. So the right motivation, it's the intrinsic value of the gospel. It's the intrinsic power of it. That's what motivates us to want to proclaim it to the world. Second, how do you steward the gospel? Second, with the right approach. Look at verse 19. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now, what does Paul mean when he says he's free from all? Well, he just spent chapter eight in the beginning of chapter nine talking about how Paul was free from the dietary restrictions that the Mosaic law handed down on the Jews. So he's saying, I'm free from those dietary restrictions, that ceremonial law. And he also says by not taking financial support, he's free from the Corinthians and dependence on them. So see, what Paul's saying is, I'm free from all men. I'm not free from all things. Because then he goes on to talk about the law. Notice what he says. He says in verse 20, though not being myself under the law, and what's Paul mean there? Well, he means I'm not, I'm not under the ceremonial civil law of the Old Testament, the one that had dietary restrictions and, and, um, and, and sacrifices. I'm not, I'm not under that anymore. I'm free. So with the, the food sacrifice to idols, the meat sacrifice to idols that he talks about in chapter 8, he says, listen, I can eat meat. I cannot eat meat. Right? He says, I'm free. But then in verse 21, what does he say? I'm not outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So he's saying, I'm not, I'm not free from all of God's law. I'm bound to God's moral law still. And his moral law is wrapped up in the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? Well, Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians in chapter six, verse two, he says this, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 5, 14 for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the approach to stewarding the gospel is to become a servant to all, which means bearing one another's burdens. That's how you serve someone, is that you bear their burden. 
That's what Jesus did for us. That when Jesus walked to his place of crucifixion with that heavy cross on his back, that was the visual picture of him bearing the burden of our sin, taking it to Calvary and nailing it to that cross. He bore our burden. And now he calls us, having been freed from our sin and set, set free from it, to now turn and bear the burdens of one another, that that's how you actually serve one another, as you bear their burden. I remember years ago, I, I led a mission trip to the Pyrenees Mountains of France. And uh, we took a group of youth. This was years ago from a church. We took a group of youth and we met up with some French youth who were in desperate need of the gospel, and we went on a backpacking trip with them. And so we start out on this trip, and one of our adult leaders on, on our side, it was with me, came down with a medical condition to where she, she couldn't carry her pack. She could hike, but she couldn't carry her pack. So I took her pack, and I strapped it on the front of me. So I had, I had my 35-pound pack on the back of me. I had her 35-pound pack in the front, which actually it balanced me out. It's nice, heading up the mountain. But it was brutal. It was painful. It was exhausting. Now, I share that because I'm, I'm giving you a visual picture of what it means to bear one another's burdens. Now, we, we certainly bear one another's physical burdens. That happens. But I would argue that the majority of what we bear and what we're called to bear for one another are emotional burdens. The emotional burdens of living life in this broken and this sinful world. You know, I opened with the story of Amy Carmichael, right? She was a missionary in India for 55 years. She bore the burden of young girls who were forced into temple prostitution to give their bodies away to pad the pockets of priests and those working in religious services. She felt that burden for those girls. And out of, the, out of bearing their burden, then moved in as a servant into India to help, right? Now, let me share a more maybe everyday relevant example. It's not about going off and doing this on the mission field abroad. I, the day after I pretty much finished this sermon, I get home. I go to my mailbox, and I'm coming back from the mailbox, and my two neighbors walk out of their house, and they're going on a walk, and I could tell they were kind of lingering a bit. And I, you know, I went away. I said, hey, how are you? And she just kind of made her way over to me with her husband, and she paused, and she said, she said, my cat died today. She had tears in her eyes. She said, I, I haven't been able to stop crying today. And I went in, and it was as clear as day. After studying Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. The Lord was clear as day. Keith and Kim, bear her burden. Steward the gospel because the gospel has much to say about loss, whether it's a loved one, whether it's a cat, because God knows loss. He chose to lose his son for you and me. And so God calls us to steward the gospel by bearing one another's burdens. As they come, we don't have to go looking for them, have to have our eyes open 
and be alert, but God brings the burdens of our family members and our friends and our neighbors to us so that we can steward the gospel well, which begins by saying, I am your servant and I'll bear your burden. And as I bear your burden, I'm gonna tell you about the one who bore my burden and who bore your burden. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So the right approach starts with a, with a heart of service, a heart of bearing one another's burdens. Second, the right approach requires the practice of engagement. You'll notice here that Paul speaks to four categories of people in this passage. The first he speaks to are the Jews. First, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Now, Paul himself was a Jew. He was a, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Philippians chapter three. He was a Jew to the T. Isn't it interesting that at this point he says, I became a Jew. Why does he say that? Because Paul is a new creation in Christ. He's neither a Jew nor a Greek. He's a new creation in Christ. When he says, I became a Jew, he says, I took on the Jewish customs when I was with Jews to connect to them, to relate to them. And so we have tons of evidence of this. In his attempt to win the Jews in Acts 16, he had Timothy circumcised because of the Jews. But in Galatians 2, he refused to get Titus circumcised. In Acts 18, Paul made a Nazarite vow to express thanks to God for deliverance. In Acts 21, he joined four Nazarites in their purification rites and paid their expenses for the sacrificial offering. Paul became a Jew to the Jews to win the Jews. Second, he says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. Now, Paul's certainly speaking of the Jews here who were under the law, but I think also here he's speaking of, of brothers and sisters with weak consciences because that's what we see in chapter eight in the beginning of nine leading up to this, is in chapter eight, there were those that had weak consciences. Paul says, listen, food doesn't commend you to God. We're free from those dietary restrictions. You can eat meat if you want. You cannot eat meat if you want. That's been sacrificed to an idol. But he says this, if. He says, if I am in relationship or I'm with people that are under the law, meaning they have weak consciences and their, their consciences are stricken by eating meat, he says, I don't eat meat. Right? Verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. If someone's conscience is stricken by drinking alcohol, when I'm in their presence, I won't drink alcohol. It's just, to those under the law, I become as one under the law to reach them, right? Third, to those outside the law, I become as one outside the law. Paul's speaking here of the Gentiles who didn't have the law of God. What he's saying is when I spend time with the Gentiles, I don't follow the, the Jewish food laws and circumcision and the new moon and the Sabbath celebrations. I don't do that because I'm with Gentiles who aren't under the law. And then fourth, he says, to the weak, I become weak. I think here he is talking about the weak conscious, conscience part, but there's another element here. When Paul says to the weak, I become a weak, I think he's speaking of the socioeconomic weak. And here's why I say that. Paul himself was an elite upper-class man. He had a white-collar education. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was elite, he was upper-class, he had that status. 
And then when, when, when Christ blinded him, called him, saved him, commissioned him, he chose to be a tent maker. Now that was to support himself, but that was also very strategic to take on a blue collar trade so that he could connect with the lower class in that trade. We see that in Acts 18, that he's able to connect with Priscilla and Aquila because of this trade that he's in. In fact, the social elite of the Roman world scorned him for his demeaning trade. The lower class accepted him readily. So Paul chose to become weak to those who were weak to reach the weak. What's the connection here? If you're gonna be a servant of all, which means that you bear one another's burdens, to bear someone's burdens, you have to engage with them. And what is you have to connect with them. And I believe what Paul is saying here is this, that we're to remove any unnecessary, any unnecessary or alienating differences that would cut us off from people who need the gospel. That's what he's saying. That we would remove all unnecessary and alienating differences so that we can connect with people who need the gospel and so that we're not cut off from them. In 1994, there was a, a police officer in Oakland, California, who was gunned down and killed, leaving behind his wife, three sons, and three daughters. And it raised this awareness of the tension that existed in Oakland, California between the police force and the Oakland youth. And so in an attempt to try to bridge this gap, the fallen officer's patrol car was completely renovated into a lowrider. A lowrider equipped with hydraulic suspension, 10 switches with front and back, side to side, three wheel motion, 13 inch wheels with 18 karat gold plated spokes, a lush stereo system and functioning police sirens and lights. And the intent was to bridge this gap with this low riding community that had, had, had a reputation for violence and for drug dealing and for gangs. And there was tremendous success. I love what this article said. The low rider has given police officers a chance to show Oakland youth that they are human, that a gun, uniform, badge, bulletproof jacket is part of the job, but behind the badge and uniform is a human being with feelings. A parent, grandparent, uncle, brother, sister, aunt. Paul says, I've become all things to all people to win as many as possible. Do you know that when Hudson Taylor showed up in China back in 1853, he shows up in China and immediately began, and this was, this was radical at the, at the time, especially amongst Protestant missionaries. He started dressing in Chinese clothes and he grew a pigtail because that's what the Chinese men wore. That's what they wore. That's what their hair looked like. He became like them. So when he went inland, he reached them. Uh, Amy Carmichael in India. She wore Indian clothes and dyed her skin with dark coffee. 
and often traveled long distances on India's hot, dusty roads to save just one little girl out of temple prostitution. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might win some. And that brings us to the last point on how we steward the gospel. Right? You steward it with the right motivation, which is the gospel alone is beautiful. The good news of Jesus is alone beautiful and powerful. You steward it with the right approach, which is this posture of I'm a servant of all. Bearing one another's burdens and becoming all things to all people to win some. And then finally, the right aim. What's the purpose of Paul becoming a servant to all and removing unnecessary and alienating differences that would cut him off from unbelievers? What's the reason? Well, it's said five times. You can't get around it. To win them. Five times he says it. To win them, to win them, to win them, to win them. And then if we don't get it, he sums it up by saying, by all means, to save some. To win them to what? Eternal life and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. To save them from what? The wrath of God, the penalty for sin. In other words, to win people to Jesus Christ. Paul says, that's my aim. But that's not it. And this is important. Look at verse 23. The aim is to win people to Christ. But verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might, that I might share with them in its blessings. The aim, don't miss this, is not just people that don't have Christ. The aim has to be your own heart as well. See what Paul's saying there? Is that I win them to share in the blessings of the gospel. Paul is not just a salesman that has a product that he doesn't believe in that he's just pushing on people. No, he has this gospel that has pressed in on him, that has invaded him, that has turned his life upside down so that when he shares, he's sharing out of a heart that is blessed by this good news. There's a danger there's a danger that when you focus on winning people, you can lose your own heart. <laughs> you can lose your own fervor for the gospel, your own love for Jesus who has rescued you and saved you. But here's the other thing I think Paul means by that. It's, it's you need to, your own heart needs to rejoice in the gospel. But notice what Paul says here is that the, the, the rejoicing or the sharing in the blessings comes as he is sharing the gospel. We talk about preaching the gospel to yourself every day at Christ Church East. So critical that every morning you wake up, you're renewed in your love for Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. How do you do that? Well, through the word, through prayer. We put a huge emphasis on word and prayer. That is true. Do you know that your heart is renewed in the gospel also by you sharing the gospel with people? because the gospel was never meant to be static. It's a movement. It is an announcement. It is news. It's historical fact that is making its way through the world. And so when you sit on it and you don't share it, your joy starts to wane because it's meant to move through you. It's like a river. It's not to be a stagnant pond. So Paul says, as I share the gospel, right? I'm 
I'm, I'm sharing in the blessings as I see people coming to Christ, as I see people interacting with it. I'm reminded of what I have when I share it. I'll never forget the day that <clears throat> this man who's now an elder in the church showed up um, at our door and he knocked. And this had been a man that we had been, the gospel had been at work, the gospel was moving in our neighborhood and it was, it, and it was working on this man and we were just participating in what it was doing. But there was resistance and there was resistance and there was resistance and then the, the one day he shows up, it's one afternoon, I'll never forget it, knocks on the door, I open it up and he looks at me and he says, I finally surrendered. And he had tears in his eyes and he's weeping. I finally surrendered. I've trusted Jesus Christ. And I can't tell you the joy that erupted in my heart, not because we had done it. We had just been faithful to participate, be in neighborhood parties and, 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 and figure out what, what he liked and have some commonalities, just simple stuff. And the Lord finally got hold of his heart. And I can tell you that verse 23 was erupting in my heart that moment, that afternoon, because as we share the gospel, as we participate in its movement, its sovereign movement through hearts and people, when the Lord brings someone to the awareness of it and surrender, there's this tremendous joy that erupts. And here's the deal. That happens whether they respond or not. Even if you've shared the gospel and there's resistance, the, 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 the practice of sharing the gospel is renewing to the human heart. Because as you share it, you're sharing it with yourself. It's coming out of a, a heart that is welling up with what Jesus has done. And so just the, the discipline of sharing the gospel causes us to share in its blessings, as does when we read the word of God, as does when we pray that it's part of the gospel moving. There was a, a, a young lady when Amy Carmichael was doing her mission work in India, a young lady wrote a letter to Amy Carmichael. And in the letter, she asked this, what is missionary life like? And here's what Amy Carmichael wrote back. Missionary life is simply a chance to die. Woo, sign me up. <laughs> yes, been looking for a way to die. And what does she mean? She means missionary life, which is not just for vocational missionaries. It's the call of every believer, right? Missionary life is an opportunity to die to self. The right motivation, right? It's an opportunity to, to die to all the values that we place on various things that are not valuable in comparison to the gospel. To die to that so that the gospel of Jesus Christ is in, intensely valuable and powerful, right? The right approach, it's, it's dying to our selfish desires and becoming a servant of all, bearing one another's burdens. All for the purpose of seeing people come alive in Jesus Christ. That's what she meant when she said missionary life is a chance to die. That is a good thing. And that is motivation, to die to selves and come alive to Christ and to watch his gospel bring new life to people. Let's pray. 
Oh, Father, we thank you that at the end of this passage of Scripture, you remind us that mission work, simply stewarding the gospel that you've given us, brings tremendous blessing, tremendous joy. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would remind us that the gospel is not stagnant, it's on the move, that, you're, that the gospel is not something we own, that we can change the message, that we can tweak it, that it's simply, it's an announcement, it's news that you own, that you give to us to share faithfully. Father, help us to steward it well. Help us to be motivated by the beauty of the good news of Jesus. Help us to become servants in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, bearing one another's burdens. Father, help us to overcome any unnecessary and alienating differences from those that need you. Father, would you give us individually and collectively as a church a heart for those that don't know Christ? And to give us that heart, would you remind us of who we are and what life is like without Christ? That we would be overwhelmed by what you've given us in your son. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.